This is Cher, and I'm here with Jason and Rob. Guys, if you had to describe this podcast in five words or less, what would you say? I'm going to go with Wild E. Coyote guzzling gasoline. I'm thinking climate change diarrhea hurricane. (laughs) Are you serious? Maybe I should do this thing on my own. Fine. It's a show about how to stay sane in a world where there's too many people consuming too much stuff and the planet can't take it anymore. You had me at diarrhea. Caution, if you're allergic to four-letter words, you might want to try a different podcast. Hey, it's a share. We really want to hear from folks. We want to get some feedback on the podcast, see what we can do to improve, see if folks have any ideas. So we would really appreciate it if you took a minute to fill out a survey that we created. You can go to postcarbon.org slash CT survey. That's CT survey. And, uh, and just let us know what you think. Thanks. Okay, I'm in the studio today um, with uh, Chuck Collins. And uh, Chuck, welcome. Welcome to Crazy Town. Hey, great to be here. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, I want to start with a quote from your book, Born on Third Base, that I think sets the tone and frame of our discussion today. On page 10, you write, quote, Every couple of years, I squeeze into my leather lederhosen shorts and eat bratwurst with my extended Oscar Mayer clan <laughs> at our family reunion's German night. I love these people. That's beautiful, Chuck. Uh, so I want to ask you, can we get a picture of that? Uh, you know, there are a lot of pictures that I'm not going to share, unfortunately, and that is one of them. Uh, but uh, you just want to see me in my later hosen, or do you want to see me in front of the Wienermobile with 250 of my closest <laughs> count, relatives? Count me in for Wienermobile. Yeah. yeah, if you can get that to us, that, Did you that's bring your later hosen with you on this trip? No, you know, they're very heavy. Oh. I mean, they're probably oh, they add like, they're like... Five pounds of leather. You guys are asking the wrong question. Can we get a ride in the Wienermobile? Like, do you do you have like a week out of the year where you get to use this thing? No. First, you should know that there are seven or eight Wienermobiles, oh. and they are oh. cr- cruising across the United States. And they have the hot doggers, who are the young people who <laughs> hot doggers have gone through a rigorous selection process to yeah. be able to work and represent the. Do they brand. sleep in the Wienermobile? Uh, they, uh, you know, I think they stay in hotels, but they. Uh-huh. Have lots of room in the Wienermobile, yeah, and right. they just they're they're just like it's going bulbous. to events. What? Yeah. I don't know if you guys know this, but the technology on those is awesome. The exhaust is hot dogs, so you can, <laughs> it just spreads them out on the street as they go by. That's the, that's going to be the, our future transportation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, can we maybe explain to folks why the hell we're talking about Lederhosen and Oscar Mayer? That's not my job. When do you guys do it? Uh, Chuck. Dude, you're I, doing Terry Gross. Come on, Terry I, Gross I, sets things up. I've properly. done an, I've done enough. Okay. I've done enough today. All right, Chuck, tell us, Oscar Mayer, why are you hanging out in front of a... Well, yeah, I'm, he's my great-grandfather and uh, came from Germany and, you know, invented a particularly good recipe for sausage and had a butcher shop <laughs> in Chicago, and the rest is history. Wow. Really. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it, it actually, when I turned 21, it stopped being a family-owned business. So, mm-hmm. you know, the giant conglomerates bought it first General Foods and then Kraft and then, like, uh, Philip Morris. Think about Philip <laughs> Morris <laughs> owning just your hot dog. That's shoving like, nicotine right yeah. into the into yeah, You the don't even dog. want to think about it. No really. wonder yeah. they're so addictive. They're delicious. <laughs> no idea. Yeah. Now, Philip Morris divested, and now it's Kraft. So, anyway, okay. a, it is what it is. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, that sets you up, I guess, a bit uh, financially, right? But then your life took a different path than maybe most, most of your German clan members. 
Yeah, well, uh, so it did mean that at the age of 21, boom, our family, when the company sold and went public, uh, you know, that meant a fair amount of wealth came flowing down into my life. And when I was 26, I actually got control over that money. So, um, you know, my parents had, like a lot of parents in wealthy families, had sort of set me up to have a trust fund to go to college and pay bills and that sort of thing. But I did kind of jump the track mm-hmm. because uh, really starting at a young age, I I sort of believed that these inequalities, you know, I sort of saw the inequalities in the society around me. I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, mm-hmm. so yeah. you couldn't have had a more... You're talking about a wealthy suburb. A yeah. wealthy yeah, yeah. suburb, yeah. Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, you know, which was like 10 miles from the city line, but it could have been a parallel universe really right. from the rest of the city. So I was tuned into the inequalities. I go down to Tiger Stadium, and you know, you sort of crisscross the race and class canyon right. of Detroit. I live in St. Louis, so it's sort of similar feel. It sounds like yeah, like East St. Louis, you <laughs> yeah. know, the, the, these but the, and North Detroit, St. Louis versus North the West Side. Oh Detroit was the champion city punching bag of kind of the the being beaten down in America, though, right? I mean, I, I can remember like it gets made fun of and in. You know, comedy movies all the time. Yeah, I mean, I'm old enough to remember Detroit when there were 2 million people who lived there as opposed to 650,000 now. You know, oh, I mean, wow. it's like, it, it just hollowed out. There was a extreme white flight, yeah. whole neighborhoods that were just, you know, shells of houses, uh, open fields. So I saw, you know, what happens when a city goes through a deindustrialization process. Right. So you grew up, I mean, I know it sounds like you inherited some wealth when you were 26, but you grew up affluent, right? I mean, even before that, you, you're part of this sort of class and community of people. That, yes. Yeah. Yes. So I, starting in third grade, went to a, a private school connected to something called Cranbrook School, which was this private boys school modeled after a private boys school in England. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like Harry Potter kind of it thing. It was very Harry Potter, yeah. you know, like the Gryffindor, you know, right. the Spartans versus the Athenians, nice. you know, stuff like so that. So can you do magic? <laughs> yeah. What's your special view? Uh, was there a hidden door to get into the school? There's a lot of hidden passageways that, uh-huh. that we discovered. Uh-huh. The school motto is aim high, okay. which is depicted by an archer shooting an arrow straight up into the air, <laughs> which if you think about it... Define gravity. It's yeah. incredibly reckless behavior. Yeah. You can't do that yeah. on school grounds, actually, right? You're not allowed to, probably. I, I aim mean, straight up in the air? Yeah. Like, like that should be... Yeah. Every, it's just not recommended every, generally. No, no, no. See, I think every student should have to do that as a rite of passage. You guys stand yeah, duck, there yeah. watching the arrow come down and just hoping it's not going to... Yeah. Wow. It's, it's their version of dodgeball. Right. It's, it's a, but, you know, like uh, Mitt Romney went to my... High school, uh, Ivan Boski. I don't remember. He was like this, you know, one of these Wall Street, an earlier generation of Wall Street robber barons. Mm. You know, the dictator of Central African Republic, Teode Abedang, went there. You know, there's like, <laughs> wow. you know, and as well as Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, and Daniel Ellsberg, when I was a senior, I hosted Daniel Ellsberg for two days on campus of talking to students. So it was kind of. So wait, who is he? I don't. The know. Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg. Okay. Oh, yeah, wow. He released yeah. the Pentagon Papers. So he's a kind of a example of somebody who also jumped the track a little bit. Right. Well, so, t- yeah, tell us how you jumped it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so you said you grew up kind of like recognizing that there was this, you were living in sort of a, a bubble or Just, in, a, in privilege, yeah? Sorry to, to interject this, but every time you guys say jump the track, I'm picturing the uh, 
the Duke boys from Dukes of Hazard in their <laughs> in their General Lee car jumping uh, oh railroad. I think cars. people in the suburbs of of Detroit would have been horrified. Yeah, at, you're from Atlanta. Yeah, did so you guys that watch that, that show in the north? Um, yes, we okay. did. And it's there's some similarity. Meaning, you know, I mean, I was in that I was on track to be in my class in a certain milieu, go to the country club, get a go to college, you know, get a business degree. You know, is this what your cousins did, for example? Uh, a lot, a lot. You know, I have a, a pretty diverse, extended family mm-hmm. that uh, you know. And by the time the fourth generation of a business comes along, people yeah. are yeah marching to their own drummers to a large extent. So I have some pretty awesome cousins who are doing amazing work in the world. I have a cousin who uh, would put on a burqa and slip into northern Afghanistan and bring money. To organize and fund schools for girls, oh my you know, wow. not the exact, uh, you know, not not your image of a typical heiress. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> in, but in my own case, I think I was just tuned into these inequalities. I had a job in my mid twenties, which was I worked with mobile home park tenants hmm. who were, you know, they owned their mobile home and they didn't own their land, and so these predatory mobile home park buyers would come along, and my job was to help them organize so they could buy the parks and own them as cooperatives. And I worked with this great group that just was working on land and housing control for tenants. And and actually, that group uh, today, still one of them is around, and they just did their 125th resident mobile home buyout in the state of New Hampshire. Wow. Wow. So tens of thousands of people own the land under their mobile homes. And hmm. um, But for me, growing up in a very privileged wealthy family it was kind of like a mind-blowing experience because i would i was the one who knew everybody's private information like i would be like okay jason what's your savings what's your income what do you have toward purchase toward the park like i knew everybody's like private tax information so part of my mind was blown by like whoa how these people have so little money how are they getting and they're just struggling and surviving and this was like in the 80s when real wages started to flatten out, you know, mm-hmm. after 30 years of sort of rising wages, people were starting to like figure out how do I survive, you know, as my expenses go up and my wages stay flat. They just, they, they didn't wait long enough for the trickle down. Reagan's yeah, trickle <laughs> still down waiting. They're still waiting, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so I had this intimate front row seat right. to people's economic struggles. And of course, I made friends with people and, you know, there's this one older couple uh, Harlan and Mary Perro, they were like, he was like the retired shop steward of Greenfield Tap and Die. He had been a union guy all his life. He was living in a mobile home. He had a, his entire nest egg, you know. He told me, you know, I have $25,000 saved away. He was the wealthiest person in the mobile home park. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and then at the other part of it is I had this front row seat to growing up in a wealthy family. So I'm like around, I go home to Michigan and people are like, yeah, you know, I, I'm invested in this fund and it's earning 29% return on investment. Or, right. you know, we just sold the house, we bought it for X and we just sold it for 50X and we're buying property. And, you know, so like on the one hand, it's like wealth creating wealth. You know, right. there it is right there. I'm seeing it. And then there's like people struggling with less. Right. So that that was what I was wrestling with uh, in my mid 20s. And it, it led me to believe that. Now, I don't really want to live in a society where inherited wealth creates such divides. Yeah. And I didn't fully understand the inequalities we were living in, but I understood it enough to be like, I don't want to be on the side 
of the accumulation, extracting, taking money from people who have so little and, you know, boosting my own wealth and investments, that kind of thing. Right. I'm kind of curious about, you know, what really depresses me a little bit and is I, I've heard this. I, I didn't grow up super wealthy, but I've had enough conversations with people who, you know, have have some decent means or, or did grow up wealthy and um, are still doing pretty well. And often there's an element of, well, we deserve this and there's a problem with them and that's why they, they can't get whether, you know, get ahead. It's often blaming the people who are poor. Yeah, they just need to work harder. Yeah, or, something like that. And uh, and so it's really sad because I guess obviously you you live with the, you were close with those folks and you're like, well, there's nothing actually wrong with their work ethic or their morals or whatever. You know, so I don't know if you had experience with that it was sort of off-putting as well. Um, and what that does to people's what it does to people who are wealthy but then are somewhat impoverished because you know they're they're throwing up this wall between them and other people. What you're describing to me is is at the center of what's gone awry. I mean, the stories that people have that justify their wealth. I mean, in my case, it's like so clear that I just was born on third base. I won mm-hmm. the lottery at birth. I picked my parents. You <laughs> yeah, know, I yeah. picked the right parents and born at the same right moment in history mm-hmm. to catch this wave of wealth. But there are people that I love dearly, but they have a mythology of deservedness. Right. You know, if I were going to put it on a bumper sticker, it's everyone is where they deserve to be. Yeah. So if you have a lot of wealth, it's because you're virtuous and you've done something to deserve it. And the shadows corollary that, you know, if you're struggling, then you've you've done something deficient and you lack in virtue or whatever. And it's, you know, crock of bullshit, really. <laughs> you know, it's like that story, though, is so powerful that – and I even see people who are like me, born on third base, but they've, like, reinvented themselves to be venture capitalists. Right? Yeah. Like, they've figured out, like, uh, being a trust fund baby has kind of got some stigma, but – if I'm a venture capitalist, I'm associating I'm, with yeah. people like you who are doing entrepreneurial, you know, things. Now I on the virtue side. Yeah, you're putting your money at risk, you know, but I'm a risk taker. But I'm sure you've got a good nest egg that's low risk. <laughs> right. But it isn't it also the reason these stories perpetuate is that you can find anecdotes that that do support it, right? So you can pull these the the bootstrap story for the occasional person, yeah. But it's not the it, it's such the outlier. It's yeah. not the real. And in fact, story. your family's origin story is that right? I mean, it it was Oscar Mayer, like yes. And there are pieces of that story that that aren't told. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to wait for some people to die off before I can tell you the the whole story. But <laughs> yeah. uh, mm-hmm. but uh, let's just say. No one did it alone. Right, of course. And, no one ever uh, does. But Rob is making an important point, which is people walk through the world and they're like thinking, well, my Aunt Kate is a real go-getter. Yeah. And Uncle Joe, he's a real slacker, and he comes to the family part potluck and he never brings anything. And, you know, and then you sort of project onto these large economic inequality trends, like these stories of deservedness. And so it's true. There, there are people who are go-getters and they – start enterprises and we are we should celebrate that i mean we should celebrate people who are doers and and uh, take risks and they should be rewarded but should they be rewarded like a thousand times more than other people or ten thousand times see the the inequalities we're living in now are like systemic they're like rule-based they're disconnected from 
individual acts of deservedness. Right. Yeah. So can you give us kind of the lay of the land with inequality? You know, you just talked about, say, like a CEO having a thousand times more. I mean, I know we've entered an age where the gaps between the haves and the have-nots are growing, but you you are way more knowledgeable than the three of us on this. Can you can you just give us the the geography? Yeah, I mean, I think we are we're in this period of extraordinary inequality. So it's 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 both the fact that real wages have been stagnant for forty plus years. Half the population is not shared in the economic gains of the last productivity period. And there's this upgushing of wealth to the very top. Uh, you know, the richest 1% has 40%, 42% of all private wealth. Mm. The higher up you go, the more concentrated. The richest 400 billionaires have as much wealth combined as the bottom 64% of the population combined. Of, of the world or of the This U.S.? is just the U.S. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then, actually, there's some good parallel statistics that Oxfam does on the world. Okay. But, you know, there's three guys in the United States, Bezos, Buffett, and Gates. Their combined wealth is equal to half of all the private wealth owned by the rest of the population, right? So right. how is that possible? Well, part of it is the number of people who have zero or negative net worth. Mm-hmm. So 21% of households, zero or negative net worth. 37% of African-American households, zero or negative net worth. So that's the moment we're in. We're and uh, we're kind of on autopilot now. We're sort of just like these inequalities are now like wired into the economy. The rules mm-hmm. of the economy are just going to keep generating more and more of these inequalities. And, and yeah. you were talking earlier about wealth begetting wealth, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. And we talk a lot about the you know sort of exponential growth or these these trends and trajectories that happen, right? Where you've got something, and even if it grows at a small percent. It's a lot, right? And, and you know, over a period of time, it's going to double and then double again. And so we're seeing that with, with, with wealth, right? And this, it's accelerating this, this divide, right? Because even if we're talking about small percentages of, of this disparity growing, it's, it's accumulating on something that's already enormous, yeah. right? Yeah. So it may, may explain some of the structural, the political and structural reasons why it's sort of locked in like this and it's, it's perpetuating. Yeah. I mean, um, in a, in a phrase, the rules of the economy have been tipped in favor of asset owners, wealth owners at the expense of wage earners. Okay. So wealth so tax, versus income kind of yeah, stream. So tax policy, uh-huh. trade policy, government regulation, government spending priorities, all have been very good to people who own assets like you can write off, you can like write off a lot of stuff that, from ownership, right? Yeah. Appreciation. Oh, this, is, and- this is exciting to me because <laughs> when I become a billionaire from my nonprofit job, I can I can keep all that and I can buy as many Wiener mobiles as I want, right? <laughs> yeah. Actually, there's a game <laughs> called uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad. Yeah. And it's a board game, and it teaches you that you know if you stay in the inner circle, you're just sucked stuck in the kind of the rent. Cycles. Like circling uh-huh. a toilet bowl. Yeah, just spinning, <laughs> spinning. And you're, the goal of the game is to jump to the outer lane, which you become 
an owner or something. You know, what the Marxists call the rentier class. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you, so you can get other people to pay you. Can right. I can I get a little raise a share? I'm yeah. looking to get to that outer circle. Yeah. You know, you might need more than that to get <laughs> to not, the jump. Not, it's not happening, yeah. is it? <laughs> sure, I'll give you. Yeah, well, two yeah. percent raise. Right. That's going to do it for you. Like one, tat, one of my yeah. favorite cartoons is this, this uh, guy, you know, old rich guy sitting in a wing back chair, and he's talking to his his daughter, and he's telling her the family story. He says, "Well, the family wealth is, you know, uh, you know, your great grandfather bought two pencils, and he sharpened them." He bought the pencils for two cents, and he sharpened them, and he sold them for six cents. Okay, good. Then he bought three more pencils, and he sharpened them, and he sold them for 12 cents. And this kept on going on for several years until your Aunt Edith died, leaving him several million dollars. Yeah. In which case... (laughs) Right. That guy had the most awesome bootstraps of all time. But... This is actually a really old story as well, right? I mean, yeah. this this gap or this reality between the property class, right, and those without property, the worker class, whatever you want to call it, is a really old story. It's just manifesting itself in a certain way right now. Yeah, I mean, and then, and again, kind of in a U.S. history bubble, there was this different period. I mean, after World War II, 1947 to 1977, there was this kind of relative equitable shared prosperity, you know, where the wages of the bottom fifth doubled, the wages of the middle doubled, the wages at the top also went up. So part of what's changed is some of the rule changes that built a white middle class after World War II, and we can talk about the fossil fuel underpinnings of that and the Mm -hmm. energy underpinnings of that as well, but uh, changed. Uh, so now the new physics of inequality is like compounding or accelerating advantage for the top and accelerating disadvantage at the bottom. And I should say the first phase of the inequality decades, the 80s, 90s, was a lot about inequality of income, you know, CEOs being paid 500 right. times their average workers, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The new phase, the post-economic meltdown, is the, the engine of inequality is returns from assets, right. from wealth. And that's why wealth is so important. People talk about income, but wealth is really where the story is. Owning stuff, owning property, owning companies, as opposed to just going to work and getting a paycheck. That's yeah. the difference between like income versus wealth. And wealth can give you income because it you can you can get dividends, for example. But it's not just stuff. I mean, this gets more more complicated. But I, what percentage of the wealth of a very wealthy people is actually physical assets versus? Dollars in a bank or whatever. It's well, sh- it's share account. a lot of a lot of it's shareholders, you know, like sh- uh, shares well, and also the idea of the stream that you get from that wealth. That's unearned income. Right. You're, you're just sitting there on your pile of assets, yeah. and next thing you know, at the end of the year, you have a check for a million bucks or whatever. And if you are, you know, I should say most of the income and wealth gains of the last decade have gone not to the richest 1%, but the richest one-tenth of 1%. Mm-hmm. So, okay, what does it take to get into that group? It's We're talking about people with incomes, two and a half, three million dollars a year income, $20 million and up in assets. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Of the income that comes in, only a fourth of it is from wages and salaries. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Half of it is from income from wealth. Yeah. I mean, I think of it like Mm -hmm. if you have a house and you own it and you put in a ton of work and make it better and you sell it and get more money in return, that's earned income because you put in the work. But if it's just that 
you sat on that property and the whatever the Whole Foods came in and the neighborhood gentrified and you could sell it for more. That's the unearned income. And so you're saying the this I don't know what to call it, the property class. I guess you you called them Jason is they they can just sit on that and relax and have money flowing in. And that's the problem with your scenario, Rob, of getting a raise and becoming a billionaire. <laughs> not not going to be there. <laughs> I think it's going to be it's going to take something else. You yeah. know. Although you, I mean, it, it is interesting to me. You, you listed the three three wealthiest people, right, in the United States, and I think people would look at them typically and say they're self made, right? Well, or they created something that was so enormously useful, right? Amazon, they Microsoft, right. Berkshire Hathaway, whatever, that they have a claim, and they probably do have some claim mm-hmm. to creating something innovative. I mean, you know, yeah. But they also then use their wealth and power to rig the rules to get more totally, you know, so, leverage the economy. So I wonder, Chuck, you, you've said that we're in this extraordinarily unequal time. Can can you talk about what happens? Like, what is the problem with that? I I, I you know, I've read your book, Born on Third Base, which we totally recommend. I also read one called The Spirit Level by Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson, and they were looking at what happens to a society as it becomes more and more uh, more and more of a gap. Yeah, there's there's a mountain of research now showing how these extreme inequalities undermine everything we care about. It's obviously bad for democracy to have so much concentrations of wealth and power. It it distorts the democratic system, it distorts the legislative system and essentially takes our votes away. Uh, it's bad for the economy. It creates volatility and instability. It's bad for civic cohesion, you know, that sense that people are in the same boat as we pull apart. Inequality undermines that. As you said, Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson, they write about how it's bad for your health to live in a society. It's even bad for your health if you're wealthy to live in a society with extreme inequalities of income and wealth. Their newest book, uh, The Inner Level, basically is arguing it's bad for our sense of well-being. So I could go down the list, but basically these inequalities really contaminate, undermine all the things that we care about. And if you think about from the perspective of we as a society need to be able to respond to the ecological threats that we're facing, mm-hmm. it's also thwarting our capacity to respond in a nimble way. Yeah, so that actually brings me to a question I wanted to bring up with you, Chuck, which is like, so you've been working on inequality issues since your your twenties, right? But what what sort of brought you to the, if you want to call it the PCI, the post carbonist two worldview? You know, being concerned about the ecological crises that that we're facing. Like, what was that journey for you? Well, I think that on a very deep level, I've always been tuned into ecological issues. You know, growing up on a farm in the suburbs, uh, having a father who was really an environmental activist. All those things sort of affected me. I've worked on these issues of inequality, but I've been kind of trying to pay attention. All my sort of hobby reading is really around just what's happening to the with climate change and ecological change. That sounds like fun reading, man. This sounds like hobby. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but you know, I would sit and read, you know, Richard Heinberg, you know, while I was on vacation and things like that. And Welcome would, to Crazy Town. <laughs> Welcome to Crazy Town. And so yeah, I I was excited about PCI because I began to learn about the transition town movement and that sort of idea of like, how do we prepare our communities for the economic and ecological transition? And I really saw PCI as kind of the 
intellectual underpinnings of some of that understanding. So I just went deep in. And part of a, part of the dilemma is, well, okay, if I care about inequality, but I also care about and recognize that we're heading into a rocky transition, how do I integrate those two things in my life? How do mm-hmm. I make sense of that? And one one thing I've been trying to figure out is, well, okay, I work every day with people who have come from sort of an inequality framework. And they think, say things like, well, we just need to um, do what we did after the Great Depression. You know, we just need to kind of gin up the economic growth machine. And as George Bush says, you know, make the pie higher. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just like, quote. we're just going to like make this giant pie, but we're going to f- carve it up better and more equitably, and we're going to include the hungry working class, and everyone will get a piece of the pie, and everything will be groovy. And so you hear that enough, and then part of my, you know, I'm just in my mind going, yeah, we don't have that playbook. That 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 is over. We're not going to extract and burn and dump our way toward some kind of economic growth that's going to create inequality. So then... That means, well, how do we reduce inequality on a finite planet? How do yeah. we do it in such a way that recognizes we're operating with a whole different set of constraints? We had those constraints before. We just didn't, didn't you know, know. You you mentioned Richard Heinberg, right? He's a colleague of ours. And his two probably best-known books, the first one is The Party's Over, and the, and the, the other one is The End of Growth. So how do you, like— Tell people who have been trying to address these systemic inequalities, these structural inequalities, and want to ensure that there's opportunity and prosperity for people who've never had it, that the party's over, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that can't be an easy message, I imagine. <laughs> no, I mean, it, in some ways, it's, it, it, you just don't stand up and bellow it out. It's kind of like you're talking to somebody about a terminal illness. Mm-hmm. You know, you, don't, you sort of have to kind of engage in a very pastoral way. I mean, I can think of hundreds of people where, you know, I, one of my colleagues uh, who is Peruvian and has worked his whole life, and I remember telling him about Richard Heinberg's book, The Party's Over, and Carlos and I, we were on one of these long drives where two guys in a car and we're just looking, eyes fixed straight ahead, we're not looking at each other, yeah. we probably couldn't have had the conversation. That's if we the were, best way to have a tough you know? <laughs> conversation right there. Yeah. You yeah. know, but he was like, yeah, but, you know, I've been wanting to get to that party you know, yeah. Um, in fact, uh, he says I've been working at the party. I've been like parking the cars at yeah. the party and uh, working at the doors. bartender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and now I want to be in that party. I want to have the consumption lifestyle. I want to have the benefits of the sort of carbon infused boom. You right, know? and we're not just dealing with that here domestically it's, in the U.S. It's a, it's the big grand challenge in right. terms of international climate action, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah, I mean, and the you know, for someone like me, where not only did I have the benefits of my economic class, but I live in the United States. I, I even look, you know, I think about my parents' generation, whose entire lives they basically rode this wave of fossil fuel infused economic growth. You know, they thought it was about something innovative in the economy. Right. <laughs> you know, that they, they thought they they were just really smart and did the right thing and good moral values. They just rode this wave. And then, you know, how do we talk about that with people who didn't have any of those advantages and, and privileges? 
I think one way we should make a cocktail called fossil fuel infused economic growth, and uh, <laughs> it'll actually have gasoline in it, and then we can all raise a glass. And we drink. should light it. One of those drinks that you well, set on I fire. Well, I think they're Molotov cocktails. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think is what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Oh, we don't want. To. We that's might be the using them for different purposes. Yeah. I mean, that's what's scary. Now that you're bringing up social disruption and Molotov cocktails, that's what scares me. Is you have, you have a class of people who are like thinking about runways and bunkers in New Zealand, okay, yeah. who's setting up economic and social policies in the U.S. and funding politicians, and they're all saying, oh, we're going to make things better. You downtrodden masses, we're going to make the pie higher. But when you look at what they're doing with their, their, their acquisition of property on an island in the South Pacific, you're wondering, do they really believe this story? <laughs> And so, uh, you know, I'm just wondering if uh, among people who are pretty wealthy, if you've talked to him, we, we brought up a... Uh, Douglas uh, Rushkoff. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you can... Yeah. So Douglas Rushkoff is someone who's uh, a, a great guy who's been a, a critic of technology for a long time. And um, he runs and, the Team Human podcast yeah. and wrote... Uh, he wrote a book by the same stones title. At, at the Google bus. And, yeah. And, and he's been writing about technology for a long time, but a lot of his... His work recently is actually talking about some of these these limits, you know, and, and connecting it to climate change and other things. And I think he had related a story about how he was invited, he thought, to this this public talk and got this this fat honorarium. And it turned out there were five billionaires in a room who just want to pick his brain. And you know, like the the question for them was like, how do I make sure my guards, my security detail, still takes care of me after everything collapses and we're hiding out in New Zealand? Yeah. <laughs> I have talked to those folks too, you know, and I think like a lot of wealthy people, they they hedge their bets based on a number of scenarios. That's how they've gotten wealthy is they've diversified. They've put, they haven't put all their eggs in one basket. So they actually might be funding movements to address climate change and funding technological fixes. And they're looking at their own private personal right bunker situation you know right. my, my message i actually i've had a number of audiences where you know i've talked to some billionaires and wealthy philanthropists as part of talking about the born on third base and uh my, my message is look this whole idea that you're going to somehow find a privatized solution to the larger global ecological crisis is delusional i mean the rich have always tried to live apart and built parallel things but we're talking about a planetary crisis and that mountaintop redoubt that you're getting is going to get choked with forest fires, and the island that you're buying is going to get swamped, and there really is no, short of the kind of science fiction Elysium scenario, right. those of you who watched the Elysium movie, which... Yeah, we brought it up in a previous episode. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> like, that is, some some wealthy people are thinking, like, yeah, I'm just going to go up to that satellite, right. <laughs> climb into that med bay, and live to 150 years old, you know, <laughs> right, and, right. and uh, Earth is going to be shithole, and oh, that's too bad, you know. It's why Elon Musk is trying to get us to Mars so fast. You know, you know so th <laughs> these are delusions, and the real... Challenge to the and people who like me to my people is uh, it's time to come home and reconnect to place and put your stake in a place. Make this your home. Make somewhere your home. You can still have solidarity with other places in the world too, right. but bring your wealth home. Take it out of like the offshore tax havens and the trusts and bring the wealth. Take it out of the fossil fuel economy put it in the real economy of goods and services and 
you know, the new food systems and the new economy and stop avoiding your taxes and put your stake in with everyone else. In a way, that is, I believe, in the interests of these wealthy people. And what I mean by that is they're living disconnected lives. Yeah. You know, privilege and wealth is a disconnection drug. Keeps people from recognizing their human solidarity with right. each other. And this is the way to get people to come home. And so, yes, the party is over. The fossil fuel-infused cocktail party is over. But we need to create a better party of human connection and celebration. And a lot of that's going to be place-based, community-based. And rich people have a role to play. Not they, they shouldn't run the show, but they have resources that they can bring to that process that will help that transition be a little less awful. Right. I think there's some... There's a lot here that just comes down to psychology because, you know, we've been talking about how the framing that people give to themselves in terms of their, their privilege, right, that they somehow had earned it or they're, they're where they should be and other people are where they should be, there must be a reason for it, is a psychological trick to justify where they're at, right? And hedging your bets or trying to create some kind of uh, doomer escape pad or whatever, you know, is, is a, a psychological thing around fear, dealing with fear. And, and there's a psychology of, of social status. I think a lot of people with privilege are, like everybody, are concerned about their relative status. And so they see other people with more wealth than them, and they want to sort of keep up with the Joneses that way. That's sort of true for all of us on some level. It's just it's just magnified, right? It's at a much larger scale for those folks. So it needs to be a shift in psychology in a sense. Like your social status might need to come from being part of a community where you see yourself as equal with people who don't have the same, have not come from the same privilege as you, which means that psychologically you have to let go of the thing that you had wrapped yourself in for a long time, which is that there must be a reason why you had this and that you're better than other people in a sense, you yeah. know? A couple observations. One is there are a lot of people waiting to be invited to mm. something bigger and more meaningful than consumption. I, yeah. I have met them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to navigate their way. They haven't found their way to the community, to that place. The, the other is that there's part of our wiring, which is fight or flight, individual protection, security, lizard brain, yeah. you know, whatever yeah. – but now we're learning there's a whole other part of our wiring, which is about mutuality and mm -hmm. reciprocity, and that when we are engaged in a barn raising or a community endeavor or we're in solidarity with others, there's something lights up in our brain. It's just like chocolate, sex, yeah. and yeah. all the things that make us feel alive. So we need to create more opportunities for us. That's the better party. The better party. Uh-huh appeals to that part mm -hmm. of our nature. We have multiple natures competing. So which yeah. one? A chocolate sex party, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also what I also think about is you're you're talking about this human, you know, human divides, whether it's 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 wealth divides, it's is racial divides that, you know, we really have to come together. And the other thing that, you know, that's gotten me that I get called on sometimes is like, oh, you're you're talking about protecting the environment or, you know, you're worried about endangered species. You care more about that lizard than you care about people. And I'm like, wow, what an amazing reaction. 
when what I see is like, no, I'm connected to the whole world and I rely on this whole planet. And if, you know, that lizards or whatever it is, is just the canary in the coal mine, which is the air I breathe and the water I drink. And so, so getting across it, it's not just mm-hmm. that we have to come together as humans, but we have to realize that, that, that the human family, in a sense, is really connected to all the other species on the planet, and that we have to protect all of that. Yeah, I mean, in a way, we're trying to, uh, at the beginning of Born in Third Base, I have this Thich Nhat Hanh quote, we, we are here to overcome the, the sort of myth of our disconnectedness. We're, our disconnection from each other and from from Gaia, from the Earth. And they really are together, and it's too bad that people will pit humans versus caring for the Earth. Mm-hmm. And you can understand how that happens, because if you're in survival mode, you are just thinking about whatever you need to do in the immediate term to survive, right. and sometimes that has a really negative impact on the Earth. And the, that there is a privilege or advantage of being able to step back and sort of see that whole web and how it interacts. But that that's unfortunate that people kind of right. use that against each other. And, mm-hmm. um, and then, but that's the th- crazy thing is because of this economic inequality we have, there's a lot of people in survival mode that really shouldn't be. And so that's what gets me. I want to get, I want to get everybody, as many people as possible to say, I'm not in survival mode. There's enough here with the fossil fuels we have, with the land base we have. It's just that the system's been rigged to put me in survival mode. So I can't really care about the long term, about survival, not just for myself and my kids, but for maybe thousands of generations of humans and and other other species that we inhabit this world with. And that's why I think the inequality is so dangerous, because it doesn't allow people to think about that. I mean, that is what I want people in the environmental movement to understand. Without dealing with the equity right. issues, we're not going to be able to build the movement to save Gaia because we're going to be constantly pitted against each other. And that the stress and insecurity that the majority of people on the planet experience is keeping us from being able to respond in that way. So the inequality activists need to understand we're not going to get there in the old way, the old fossil fuel burning ecological destruction model of growth. We have to live, we have to reduce inequality in that context. And I would say also not a renewable growth powered system either, which is more of an edge for folks. It's even more of a stretch, but it's, you know, we're trying to be honest with people about how we're going to move forward. And we're not going to be able to kind of build the movements we need to defend the earth and make this transition without dealing with the gross equity and inequality issues. So they're they're really wound together fundamentally. Yeah. Hey, I want to bring this full circle. Uh, I think I can speak for Jason and a share that we find Chuck Collins to be one of the people that has influenced our thinking the most. We we read your stuff. We have you on our board. We call you up when we're in times of crisis and get uh, good advice. And you know what you're talking about. And I want to have you tell our listeners, you know, we talked about you getting all this money at 26, but can you talk about what happened after going into the mobile home community and working with them and and what you did in your private life? Yeah. I mean, I had this experience of working with these low-income tenants who actually stood in solidarity with each other, risked everything they had to, to buy their communities together. And part of me was like, 
at the age of 26 was like, wow, I want what these people have. I want to live in a community where people are all in for each other, where there's reciprocity. You know, having grown up in a wealthy family, I was, uh, I didn't have to ask for help. I didn't have to depend on other people. That's one of the ways in which wealthy people get isolated and disconnected. And so in order to make, move forward, I felt like I needed to give the wealth away. I didn't fully understand all the other advantages I had that were kind of more hardwired into my existence, being male and white and four generations of economic stability and you know, mm-hmm. on and on and on. To be honest, I was at that point kind of clueless. Yeah. But I understood that the money was one of those barriers. And in a way, I think there's maybe something to be learned from that process of relinquishment, which is my, my life, you know, now I'm almost 60, so 34 years ago making this decision has enriched my life considerably. And it's not because I'm taking private jets anywhere. It's because actually I'm taking the bus or I'm walking or I'm, you know, I'm living in a community. I'm in a place. I have neighbors. I have to depend on other people. And that's the spice of life. That's what's the true enrichment. And it's not like every day is fantastic, but I'm fine, you know? And if there's huge adversities and things go wrong... I have a community that I think will, you know, that I'm part of, that I'm part of helping other people and other people will help me. Um, And that was the big lesson was, you know, you want to be part of a, our real security is in our relationships and our community. And to the extent we can build some support institutions uh, to help us face the rocky transition ahead. I really appreciate the ideas and the sentiment. uh, And I think, the idea of money as a barrier, as a disconnecting force. Uh, I'm going to go out and burn a share in Jason's money. I think that's my... Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. That's my next move. You really want to help them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I, I just want to say that one of the, the takeaways for me from this conversation is thinking about empathy and privilege and sort of call on all of us to think about our relationship with these things because... You know, certainly there's a call to action here for people who are truly privileged. They're part of the the wealthy class, right? There's a there's a big invitation to them there. But I think there's an invitation for all of us. And the invitation might be to recognize that we have we may not be as privileged as those people, but we have a lot of privilege. And and some of that privilege actually happens to be the the time that we were born into. And if, if you're listening to this, you're already privileged on some level. And we certainly are, those of us in, in this room. And part of our relationship with, with privilege might also be to make an invitation to people, you know, to, to, to be empathetic and to recognize that it's easy to vilify these folks. Some of them are worth vilifying. I like to vilify economists. But, but we also need to invite them to be part of the solution. And that means that we have to sort of step outside of ourselves and realize that here we are in a polit- in a time of political divisiveness and that is not going to get us through. We are going to have to come together, all of us, and that means recognizing that, that we're all human and have more in common than we have, you know, different. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things I've come to appreciate is a lot of my neighbors have things I need. They have resourcefulness, they have life experience, they have skills and insights that I didn't grow up with. And as somebody who grew up with some privilege, I have I have a few tools in the toolbox that I can bring, not just money, but I mean, 
sometimes a sense of agency and sometimes a sense of other possibilities. So, you know, I think that is part of this coming together um, and part of the preparing for what we we call the you know the great unraveling. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that we're going to need every all hands on deck. We're going to need all the insights that each of us have from our various upbringings and the communities and places in the world we come from. That will be part of how we hold our communities together. Okay. Well, it's a pleasure to have Chuck Collins here in Crazy Town. We're going to jet away in a wiener mobile while firing arrows straight up in the air for the uh, the rest of the day. Uh, Corvallis will never be the same. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That's our show. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to the podcast. And while you're at it, rate or review it at iTunes. That really helps get in front of more people. To learn more, visit postcarbon.org slash crazytown. And if you want to actually learn something instead of listening to us bozos, you should check out Post Carbon Institute's Think Resilience course. It's four hours, 20 bucks, and will seriously change the way you see the world. Catch you next time on the mean streets at Crazytown. We've got a great new sponsor, Nickadog. Nickadog is the official food of modern living. In one neatly prepared package, you not only get all the nutrition of a techno-processed hot dog, but you also get 24 milligrams of nicotine. The average cigarette contains only 12 milligrams. This is a great product for doomsday preppers. Chock full of preservatives and artificial flavors, these puppies will last a lifetime. We're not sure, but they may even be made out of actual euthanized dogs. And... In a marketing coup, the Coney Island hot dog eating competition is switching from Nathan's famous hot dogs to Nickadogs. The world champion hot dog eater is a guy named Joey Chestnut. He ate 74 Nathan's famous hot dogs in 10 minutes at last year's competition. Imagine how he's going to feel after ingesting 74 Nickadogs. Surgeon General's warning. The lethal dose for ingesting nicotine for a human adult is 60 milligrams. Never consume more than two Nicodogs in any 24-hour period. Each Nicodog package comes with a large print phone number for the Poison Control Center.